We turn this evening to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be reading and considering the whole chapter this evening. And uh, as we think and reflect upon the words that God has given to us under this theme of the supremacy of Christ, His priesthood, we pick up where the author has indicated he's been going a couple of times uh, dealing with this order of Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Melchizedek, which he is holding before us in chapter 7 as that which is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. So we're going to be looking at two things from this chapter. One, the appearance of Melchizedek, and then secondly, the likeness of Melchizedek. Let's hear then God's breathed out word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. See how this, how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. These also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been to, for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for these words that you have given us in your Holy Bible. We thank you that Pastor Bob is here tonight to help us to understand them better, and we pray that you will be with him as he explains it to us. We ask for your guidance and blessing in all of this and in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So as I mentioned prior to reading, two points. One, the appearance of Melchizedek, and secondly, how the author here uses that expression. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And of course, he is referring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But this appearance of Melchizedek that, that the author begins this section with is pretty unique. It, it's, uh, it's pretty tucked away in the pages of, of the Old Testament. Uh, it occurs, Melchizedek comes to the, to the forefront. We're first introduced to this individual during the life of Abraham, if you want the specific uh, passage, it's Genesis 14, and it's uh, in verses 17 through 24. And as the author tells us here in Hebrews, it's when uh, Lot had been taken captive, and then Abraham and his men march out against those kings, and they defeat the kings, and in the process of coming back from that victory, with all the spoils that Abraham had, that Melchizedek makes an appearance. Melchizedek actually goes out and greets him as he returns from that battle. And it's that Melchizedek now that the author of Hebrews is, is bringing in to, to show us the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But it is a little mysterious, right? First of all, we, we only have that section. We, we only have that little portion. We don't have any background about Melchizedek, nor do we have anything that follows from that. Now, we're going to get to uh, the prophecy and the oath that God takes and makes, 
But as far as something historically happening with that Melchizedek, we don't. And the whole thing is, is just a little mysterious. He is identified as a king. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that. But even his name does. Right? The, the Melchi means my king. The Zadek means righteousness. My king, righteousness. Or as we have it described for us in this passage even, that he is the king of righteousness. There at the end of verse 2. So even his name, kind of an interesting name. One, one would think, did somebody actually name their child Melchizedek? the king of righteousness, or is this the name that is given to this figure because of how he appears in Scripture? Well, that we don't know either in that regard. Except we know the meaning of his name, and we know that he is a king. And we know that he is a king of Salem. Which means peace. So not only is he the king of righteousness... But he is also the king of peace. And you should immediately recognize that term, Salem, as the end of the word Jerusalem. And most commentators believe that that is indeed the tie-in. There are a couple of references in the Psalms that, that would indicate to us that, that this place that Melchizedek rules over, Salem is indeed the city of Jerusalem, which will later become the city of David, which later becomes Zion, which in and of itself is just kind of interesting that in the middle of the, this, this exchange between Abraham and Lot, suddenly this man that we know nothing else prior or nothing else after makes an appearance with the name of the king of righteousness, the king of peace. But he's also a priest. He serves not only in terms of, of the fact that he is king, but he's also priest. That's a unique combination. Doesn't happen very often. When we read the passage in Genesis, we find out that when he came out to greet Abraham, he brings a very strange offering, presents it to Abraham, bread and wine. Interesting, isn't it, that that, that would be the thing that, that he brings to Abraham, particularly as we think about uh, the Lord's Supper tonight. This is what he presents, and, and he's known as the priest. He's known as priest. He's known as king. Both titles. But as the passage here goes on, verse 3, there's even something a little more mysterious. He is without father or mother or genealogy. No parenthood is given. We're, we're not told that Melchizedek was the son of so-and-so. From the tribe of such and such, nothing about that. Nothing is given as far as his ancestry. No information. 
Some commentators believe that's, that's so that when we come to Aaron and we find out that the, the priesthood under Aaron was all tied up into name. It was all tied up into family. It was all tied up into who your father was and if you're of the tribe of Levi. Here's the contrast, right? The priesthood under Aaron is all associated with family, ancestry, and lineage. Here is Melchizedek, who is also a priest, but there is no ancestry given. But even beyond that, he continues forever. Listen to how verse 3 ends. Not only beginning of having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. One has to stand back, does not one, and say, was this truly a man? Each of those descriptors, do they not, would, would have us point forward. It's almost like God is giving to us here in the Old Testament a prophecy of the priest who is to come. Here he is. He greets Abraham. I happen to believe that Melchizedek was, was a historical figure. I think given its context and setting back there in, in uh, Genesis, it would certainly apply that way. And you'd have to look at it that way, that that was a historical account that is being given. It's a historical narrative. And so there did exist a a man by the name of Melchizedek who functioned in that way, who brought out. This isn't some sort of parable. This isn't some sort of just, well, you know, it, it just has some meaning. Now, I think there really was a man there. But does he function as it were prophecy of the coming of Christ there is no doubt there's no doubt there there's no doubt even that the author of Hebrews here is understanding it in that way for when he now turns and begins to talk about Jesus as the high priest he uses that expression this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of of Melchizedek. He doesn't say he is Melchizedek. He doesn't equate Jesus and Melchizedek equally, but he says that that Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek. In what sense? Well, let's just look at those descriptors quickly. One, that he is a king. Two, he is priest. Three, he has no genealogy. Four, he continues forever. In that way, See, in that way, the author is saying, Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek. But before we move to that second point, we have to stop and, because the, the author of Hebrews here interjects something else. And he interjects not just that Melchizedek was there, not just Melchizedek did this, but that Abraham acknowledged him. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that the author of Hebrews is addressing this to Hebrew people. That's why it's called Hebrews. 
And he is seeking to show them and to remind these Hebrew Christians that the priesthood of Christ is superior to the priesthood that is back there in Jerusalem. Because remember, they're, they're beginning to turn a little from Christ. They're beginning to think, well, maybe it isn't all about Christ. What about, you know, I kind of miss some of those old rituals. I miss some of those old festivals. And I miss going to Jerusalem. And I miss going to the temple. And I miss the pageantry of the priesthood. And he's coming and saying, no, don't do that. You have a greater priest. You have a superior priest in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how superior Christ's priesthood is. Let me give you this example of Melchizedek. Because what does Abraham do? Abraham acknowledges the superiority of Melchizedek. How? acknowledges it by bringing him that tithe. And by the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the superior always blesses the inferior. It is Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. It is Abraham who gives the tithe to Melchizedek, because he is the superior. Now notice what the author does. The author says, okay, so you have this, this priesthood of Aaron that's functioning there in Jerusalem. The priesthood of Aaron. Of what tribe is Aaron? Aaron's of Levi, of course. Okay. Where does Levi come from? Well, he comes from Jacob. Who does Jacob come from? He comes from Isaac. Who does Isaac come from? He comes from Abraham. So the author is like saying, look, when Abraham came and presented that tithe, acknowledging the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, it's like he's got Levi's name written on his thigh. And he's got Aaron's name written on the other one. He's there as representing Levi. And Aaron. And what are Levi, the tribe, and what is Aaron doing? He is submitting to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That that priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Now his point is going to be, Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron... He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. So let's look at that secondly this evening, that likeness of Melchizedek. So basically we're at verse 15 now of chapter 7, and we're making our way down through this. But in verses 11 through 14, the author has given to us a reason why there needs to be a new priesthood. Why wasn't the priesthood of Aaron sufficient? Why was it that God, in Psalm 110, through David, well after the priesthood of Aaron had been established, 
priesthood of Aaron had been around for a thousand years by the time of David. And yet God puts into, into the heart of David a psalm to speak not about you are a priest forever like Aaron. No. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You are my son. And I give to you the priesthood of Melchizedek. Why was it, why is God even thinking about another priesthood? Because the priesthood of Aaron is too weak. Because it is made up of mortal men. Mortal men who are sinful men. Sinful men who can never take away the sins of others. Mortal men who no matter what they do, always do so with sin. No matter how diligently that priest would follow those rules, and those rituals associated with sacrifice. You cannot get away from the fact he was not pure. He was not holy. There was sin. There was sin in his heart. There was sin in his soul. So that no matter what he did, no matter what offering, it was never a pure, perfect sacrifice. It was weak. Why? Because it was based upon human ancestry. Well, what's the problem with human ancestry? Original sin. You can't get away from it. No human priest in the line of Aaron could ever offer the sacrifice that needed to be made to take away the sins of the people. Because every sacrifice he offered contained sin. That's why God puts into the mouth of his servant David the words of saying, there is coming a day, there is coming a time when there will be a new priesthood. A priesthood not in the family line, not according to the law, not according to that which was given at Mount Sinai, but that which was given to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the law. The priesthood of Melchizedek supersedes the priesthood of Aaron because it existed before the priesthood of Aaron. So God comes to David, fills him with the words of the Spirit, and so he utters, My son, you're going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not in the line of Melchizedek, because that would indicate ancestry. But you're in the order of. You're in the likeness of, as the author says there in verse 15. But understand the need. Why do we need to change the priesthood? Now imagine if you're a first century Jewish Christian who is thinking about, contemplating, maybe going back into Judaism. What is the author, what is the spirit through that author telling them? 
why would you go back into a weak system when a superior system has been given to you? So he turns our attention then to the better covenant. The better covenant. And the fact that there is a guarantor. There is one who guarantees a better covenant than the covenant that was given on Mount Sinai. And that guarantor, the one who guarantees the better covenant, is Jesus Christ. Look with me then at verses 15 through 22. In what way? Why is Jesus the guarantee of the better covenant? One, it's not by legal requirements. See that? Verse 16. Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. How does he become a better priest? Because of an indestructible life. He's going to go back into this in other chapters that, that come up as well. But every single one of them priests die. Aaron dies. His sons die. His grandson dies. Every single priest dies. So it's as if the, the author is saying to these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew believers, why would you go back to a system where your priest dies and dies and dies and yet keep having to try to find a descendant of Aaron to take over the priesthood when there is a priest who serves forever and ever and ever? Why would you have to meet in a little room, write some names on pieces of paper, collect them all, and then once it's been tallied, burn it and let the smoke go up to figure out who your head priest is. Why would you go back to a system like that when you have a priest who lives forever? When your superior high priest has an indestructible life. Not only does he have an indestructible life, the work of this priest is far superior as well. The work is that which does not need to be repeated. He offers it once. I know many of you, as we've gone through the Old Testament from time to time in our Bible studies, we, we, we marvel, we, we, we just marvel at the number of animals that are used for sacrifices. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of animals sacrificed. And when that tens of thousands are done, they got to do it the next day. And then the next day, it's just a continual slaughter of animals over and over and over again. It never ends. But Christ offered himself but once. 
What is the superior priesthood? One who has to keep doing it over and over and over and over again? Let, let, let me give you an example. Okay, this is maybe we can relate to this differently with this. Suppose you got a plumbing leak, right? You got something in your house, the faucet is leaking, and you've tried to figure, you can't figure it out. So you call in the plumber. Plumber comes, charges you 175 bucks, says it's all fixed. He's no more out of the driveway, and the thing's leaking again. Call him up, come on back, comes on back. Nope, oh, think I got it now. He's no more than out of the driveway, starts leaking again. Comes back, oh, I got it fixed now. Week later, drip, 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 here it is again. Hey, you want that plumber, and you got to get, well, I want to call the guy who comes once, fixes it, and you never have a problem with it again. Why would you go back to the old plumber? Why would you go back to a weak priest who has to offer and 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 offer a sacrifice when there is a priest who makes a one-time offer and it is completed? You see, he's the guarantee of a better covenant, not only because of his indestructible life, not only because of his work, but because of the oath. That's what takes us back to that, that statement from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Lord himself swore an oath. Remember where we were last Lord's Day in, in Hebrews chapter 6? Okay, the slaying of those animals and the Lord himself takes that oath. The Lord has taken an oath. Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he is the guarantee of a better covenant. A better covenant. Why? Because he's the perfect sacrifice. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. What descendant of Aaron could say that? What priest in that Jewish list of priests could say that? None. But you see, the covenant, this new covenant, this better covenant, is done by the work of Christ because he is the perfect priest. He does not have, you see, that original sin tainted to him. He doesn't have that ancestry. He doesn't have Adam's sin staining every single thing he does. 
He is the guarantee of a better covenant. But I want to close by just reading to you again verses 23 through 25 and then making just a couple of brief comments. Listen to these verses again. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You say, okay, Bob, you've made that point. But listen to the consequently. Because of that, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. What are the words in our celebration of the Lord's Supper that that when we take that bread and that cup, what words do we hear? Remember and believe. What? That all of your sin to the uttermost, to the depth, to the depth, to the depth of your sin. There is no depth of hell that you or I have sunk to that he cannot save us from. He saves to the uttermost. Fully, completely, totally. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It reaches so deep into my heart, into my soul. It reaches deep into those crevices of sin that I think I'm even hiding. But he penetrates down in. And he saves to the uttermost. What a great high priest. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful picture. He saves all who draw near. Come unto me, ye who are weary. I'll give you rest. Come to me, you are thirsty. I'll give you the drink of the water of life. All who draw near. All who by faith come to Christ. Come to him. He doesn't differentiate here. He doesn't say, well, you've got to pass a certain test in order to be close enough that I save you to the uttermost. You just need to draw near. You just need to come. Come to Christ. You see, in that Old Testament system, they could never draw near. It was only the priest who, upon that day of atonement who could go behind that curtain into the presence of God. Why, why 
why would you want to go back to that? When he stands and says, come near, draw near. How can I? How can I come near to God? My sin. My guilt. Because by his one sacrifice, he has saved to the uttermost depth of my sin. And we come to this table to be reminded that he gave his body, that he shed his blood so that I might be saved to the uttermost. That's why this table is a celebration. It's a celebration of the superior high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, as we now approach this table, a table that you invite us to come to, a table that you desire for us to come to, we pray, Father, that as we draw near, as we draw near to Christ, Lord, that you will feed us, not physically, but that you will feed us spiritually, that you will strengthen us with the truth of Jesus Christ as our priest and with the reality that we might live in the freedom that Christ has given to us as his people. In his name we pray and God's people say, amen.